tired of the everyday grind? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you... Escape. Escape. Designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Adventure, adventure, adventure. Adventure in the Time of the Anthropocene, with me, Jake Smith. Tonight, we escape to the wildest mountains of Idaho, and the story of love and murder in the midst of a raging forest fire, as Anthony Ellis tells it in The Red Forest. This is the introduction to Red Forest, an original story written for Escape by Antony Ellis and first broadcast in August of 1950. Red Forest makes an interesting point of comparison with The Grove of Ashtaroth, the show that we focused on in the last episode, because each is typical of a distinct period in the eight-year run of Escape. The first four seasons of Escape, which aired between 1947 and 1949, drew heavily on classic British literature by authors like Rudyard Kipling, Robert Louis Stevenson, and H.G. Wells. But beginning with season five in 1949, adaptations of well-known classics began to be outnumbered by original stories by staff writers like Ellis. In addition to Red Forest, Ellis wrote 16 original scripts for Escape, making him the most produced author on the series. The late seasons of Escape feature more contemporary and more American stories, and they also have an edgier and more cynical tone than the early shows. Instead of an earlier swashbuckling style of adventure, the post-war narratives are harsher, more realistic, and often feature a flawed and less-than-virtuous hero. In this podcast and the next one, we'll be listening to examples of this later style. The less-than-virtuous protagonist of Red Forest is Wally Pendell, played by William Conrad. When the episode begins, Wally is lost in an Idaho forest at twilight. It had taken me five years, three months, and four days. It had carried me across 21 states. And then in the Clearwater country of Idaho, I'd found it. That was in the afternoon. The trail had led from a lumber town along a washboard road and into the forests. I'm no woodsman, but in the daylight, I found the place. And then I started back to the car. But something was different. Maybe the late sun red through the trees, maybe tall shadows... There wasn't a trail anymore, only streams where there hadn't been before. Trees that were the same, but weren't. And sounds, 
Sounds that were fun when you were a kid on a hike, but now scared you. I used my last cigarette three or four hours before, and it was then that I... that I started to run. Run. And the fear grows until you want to scream and want the ground to open up for you, warm and safe. But it didn't. And now, there was only the dry whirring of a rattlesnake coiled inches away from me. No! The opening scene of Red Forest leaves the listener as disoriented as Wally seems to be. We're wondering about what he's doing in the forest and what his quest is all about. It feels like we've tuned into the broadcast late and missed some crucial bit of information. It's like an adventure is coming to an end rather than just beginning. Notice, too, how the forest setting moves out of the background and overwhelms Wally's narration. Trees that were the same but weren't. The show seems to be hinting at a connection between Wally's adventure and the more-than-human environment. Just what that connection might be remains a mystery, as Wally finds his car and, driving a little later, picks up a young female hitchhiker named Jan. A half hour later, on the outskirts of a little town, my headlights picked up a girl standing on the side of the road. She carried a cheap paper suitcase, and she was thumbing a ride. I stopped. Mister? What, sure. Ah, here. I'll put your case in the back. More questions arise when Jan asks Wally about scratches on his face, and he tells her a pretty unconvincing story. Hey, your face. What? You, you've been hurt. You're all scratched up. Oh, well, uh, I, I was hunting. I got lost just the other side of town. A little while later, Jan sees a bright glow in the sky. I wonder what that is, over there. What? The sky. Bright light, see? I don't know. And before long, they encounter a roadblock. The light's on the road. And then closer, the figures waving. Hey, they're already? I I just got to sleep. No, there's something wrong. There's a cop coming this way. Uh, what's the trouble? Plenty. We want you, mister. Want me? Yeah. Forest fire. Bad one. We've got to have every man we can find. Well, I'm awfully sorry, but you see, I'm on my way to Missoula. Not tonight. I got authority to do this, mister. I'm sorry, but we need you. Well, I... You couldn't get much further anyway. The road's cut off. Mountain's going up like a torch. If it's spread, there's three towns going too. Wally and Jan are pressed into service to fight the fire with a ragtag group of volunteers. The group is unable to halt the advancing fire and soon becomes surrounded by the flames. Midway through the episode, Wally and Jan climb to the top of a ridge and are horrified to see the full extent of the wildfire. We began to climb, and after a while we were on another ridge. For the first time we could see the fire. It stretched out for miles like a huge red sea. It was all around us. I want to linger for a while on the soundscape of the forest fire, so I've looped some of the sounds from the scene. Like the swarms of rats and flocks of birds that we've heard in previous episodes, the forest fire scene is a great chance to showcase radio sound effects. 
During the golden age of radio drama, the illusion of fire would often be created in the studio by crumpling cellophane, snapping twigs, using a wind machine, or manipulating a blowtorch. Grass is dry as tinder here. That'll get it started. Shorty, you get some of that dead wood burning in a hurry. Grass is catching on. It's dry, all right. The sound of a forest fire is also compelling from an environmental perspective. Like the countless tiny creeks that make up the sound of a glacier, the sound of a forest fire is actually a multitude of many sounds that we perceive as one and that give us an index of a large geographical area. The author John Hull writes about these kinds of sounds and how important they were to him as he was losing his sense of vision. Hull describes his discovery that the sound of the wind could activate an otherwise imperceptible environment. The wind creates trees, he writes. One is surrounded by trees where before there was nothing. The sounds of rain can do this too. Hull writes that the sound of rain throws a colored blanket over previously invisible things. Like wind and rain, the sound of wildfire activates the environment and situates the listener in a fuller experience of surrounding space. It's at this moment in Red Forest that we begin to learn about the links between the forest environment and Wally's mysterious adventure. Surrounded by the huge Red Sea, Wally tells Jan the truth about his five-year quest. Listen, Jana. I want to tell you something. What? I, uh, I did something wrong once. I, I killed a man. Why? He framed me. Got me pulled away for something I didn't do. We were driving in the east and ran over a woman. He was at the wheel, but he took a powder and left me. But you didn't do it. That's what I say, but I'd been drinking and went to sleep. When I woke up, I was behind the wheel. He'd put me there. That's how the cops found me. I got five years. Oh. I was married. My wife killed herself. Ashamed, I guess. I lost my job and my friends. I swore I'd get my pal, and I did. Now we understand the show's mysterious opening scene with its odd mixture of dread and disorientation. It had taken me five years, three months, and four days. It had carried me across 21 states. And then in the Clearwater country of Idaho, I'd found it. But there's even more to Wally's burden of guilt, which we discover when the group stumbles upon the scene of Wally's crime. Hey, hold up. There's a shack. <coughs> Looks like someone's living there. <laughs> Better have a look. Door's open. Hey. It's a man. All right, give me a hand. Sure. <coughs> hey, he's being shot. 
Yeah. A few hours ago, from the looks of it. <coughs> you think the man who did this might have started it? What do you mean? The fire. It started a few miles north of here. We figured somebody got careless with a match. Uh, maybe the killer running away. <coughs> I'd like to get the fellow that did that. Sure enough, Wally remembers tossing away a match he used to light a cigarette just after the killing. Sure, the man in the shack was Lenny Gillen. Sure, I'd kill him. It was my match on that last cigarette when I was lost that must have started this fire, but it wasn't important anymore. Right now, I wanted to get Jan out of it. Get myself out. Remember from the last episode that I'm interested now in scales of time in Escape's adventures. When we learn the true facts about Wally's quest and that he started the forest fire, Red Forest aligns momentary action when Wally pulls the trigger or drops a match, his five-year adventure, and the life and death of an entire forest ecosystem. This is what I mean by slow adventure. Slow adventure. To amplify the story's resonance on an ecosystem level, I want to add some concrete details about the setting of Red Forest. Placing the story in an Idaho lumber town drew upon a popular association between wildfires and the northern Rocky Mountain region. That association began with the most famous wildfire in American history, the Big Blow-Up of 1910. No amount of money, equipment, or firefighters could stop the hurricane of fire that raged out of control on August 20th and 21st, 1910. The big blow-up would be the catalyst of wildland fire suppression for the next 100 years. 1910, I was eight years old. I went to Sunday school, and it was cloudy. It looked like it was going to storm. And uh, I came out from Sunday school, and the whole west side of the Bitterroot Valley was red. And I thought, good heavens, is the war coming to an end? On August 20th, a terrific hurricane broke over the mountains. They picked up the fires and carried them for miles. The wind was so strong that it almost lifted men out of their saddles, and the canyons seemed to act as chimneys through which the wind and fires swept at the roar of a thousand freight trains. Ranger Ed Pulaski. Forest fires were a big concern after 1910, and public officials developed strict policies to suppress all fires in protected areas. These strict policies of fire prevention continued during World War II, when forest defense was linked to national defense. The ideology of fire prevention found expression in popular culture. The most iconic example is the Smokey the Bear campaign that was created by the Wartime Advertising Council in 1945. There's also Walt Disney's Bambi from 1942, which features a devastating forest fire caused by careless hunters. Two other films from this time 
illustrate the mechanization of fire prevention during the post-war era. The Forest Rangers from 1942 opens with a sequence that depicts the infrastructural network of fire prevention. First, we see a fire starting in the forest underbrush. A forest ranger in a lookout tower sees the fire with his binoculars. The ranger uses a device called a firefinder to pinpoint the location of the blaze. He telephones a switchboard that connects to a central station equipped with maps and weather reports. Union River, Saddleback Lookout, Mac. Smoke and Picayune Canyon. What you reading? Rangers are deployed to fight the fire. Rangers on the ground use portable radios to communicate with airplanes overhead. SPF 7 to K 13. Come in, Frank. A-13, SPF-7. You better jump over the other side of that spur, Don. It's roaring up there. Don't lose any time. It's frowning. Okay, Frank. There's a similar opening sequence in Red Skies of Montana from 1952. A bolt of lightning ignites a forest fire. The fire is observed by a ranger in a lookout tower. A lookout stationed 23 miles northeast of Bugle Peak was the first to observe the fire. He locates the trouble with a firefinder. A second lookout 29 miles southwest of Bugle Peak also sighted the blaze. Simultaneously, the two reported it to the nearest ranger station. Here, within 30 seconds of the lightning strike, a cross-reading established the exact location of the fire. A public address system alerts a team of rangers. Fire call. Fire call. Fire call. Cliff Mason, foreman. Oh, no. Report to the ready room the following And the rangers battle the blaze through the coordination of airplanes and portable radios. All right, Neil, go ahead. He's whipping right down the canyon. Coming at you. Better make your line as wide as you can. Okay, I know how wide to make it. In both of these films, we're shown an infrastructural network of fire prevention that resembles the ship-to-shore infrastructure of lighthouses, radio, and navigational technologies that we talked about in other episodes. Here again, we see how adventure during the post-war era often took place in a contact zone between natural spaces and human infrastructure. Red Forest refers to this fire prevention communication network when Wally's given the task of operating the group's walkie-talkie. You ever use one of these? Walkie-talkie? Well, sure, I was in the signal corps. Okay, then you'll carry it. Wally is not a heroic ranger like the leads in these two movies, but his carelessness with matches still works to deliver the message of fire prevention. In fact, when Red Forest was rebroadcast on Escape in 1953, it featured a public service announcement on the dangers of forest fires. We will return to escape in just a moment. Lightning may strike more than once in the same place, but it can't begin to compete with man when it comes to starting forest fires. For one fire caused by lightning, 
Supposedly rational humans cause nine by trifling carelessness with matches, cigarettes, and bonfires. We need our forests for timber, to conserve our water supply, to add beauty to our lives. Let's not burn them up. And now, back to Escape. Several episodes of Escape from the summer and fall of 1953 had PSAs on this subject. One begins... Last year, the smoke of great forest fires blotted out the sun over vast regions. Such tragedy of human loss and property loss must not be repeated in 1953. The reference here is to the fire season of 1952, which had been exceptionally bad due to dry weather. In November of 1952, a huge cloud of smoke produced by fires from as far away as Oklahoma and Texas cast an eerie gloom over New York City. Newspaper images of this huge cloud of smoke feel like early warnings about how climate events would increasingly link distant spaces in the era of the Anthropocene. The cloud of smoke from 1952 is also telling because, to some degree, it was man-made. In fact, the fire prevention policies communicated in those public service announcements on escape helped to create the conditions for the fires of 1952. That's because, ironically, those policies could increase the intensity of wildfires. When all fires are suppressed as aggressively as they were during the decades around World War II, burnable materials accumulate in forests so that fires are larger and more destructive than under more natural conditions. Red Forest was broadcast at a time when a new historical understanding of the role of fire in American forests was starting to motivate a shift in policy from fire prevention to fire management. Strict regimes of fire suppression have been based on the belief that preventing wildfires could return forests to a pristine state before the arrival of Europeans. But that supposedly pristine North American forest was already a human product because it had long been shaped by the extensive use of fire by Native Americans. We might notice a connection here between the failure to recognize how people had shaped North American forests through fire practices and the empty landscape motif that we talked about in the last episode. Both are symptoms of a colonial ideology that ignores indigenous people and their labor on the land. And in both cases, adding concrete details about the setting where an adventure takes place can push back on that tendency by opening the story to other voices and longer durations of time. In the case of Red Forest, the story needs a fire to function as an adventure narrative, but concrete details about the setting, about which forest, and how that forest was understood, can situate the adventure in a broader historical context. It's like striking the story in such a way that it begins to resonate out with overtones that reverberate on many temporal levels, from 20th century fire policy to the longer history of human interaction with the forest environment, and even to the level of forest succession, climate, and ecosystem. 
When we listen to it adventurously, Red Forest can align momentary action with both a human and a forest life as a whole. One way I've been encouraging you to listen adventurously to Escape is by mashing it up with the work of environmentally-minded sound artists. The studio-created soundscape of Red Forest would feel very different if it included the kinds of sounds we're listening to now, which are taken from David Dunn's remarkable project, The Sound of Light in Trees. Dunn placed a transducer microphone inside pinion trees to hear the bark beetles that were infesting forests in the southwestern United States. In these sounds, we can hear the momentary actions of the beetles, but also the damage wrought to forest ecosystems by fossil fuel-driven global warming. Dunn's work provides another model for the kind of adventurous and polyphonic listening I want to bring to Red Forest. I want to think about how those longer durations of climate change and forest ecosystem can feed back on the way we understand shorter ones like Wally's adventure. So let's zoom back in to that temporal level and see how things pan out for Wally and Jan. They manage to make it out of the inferno and coughing in the smoke, Wally loses consciousness, waking up later in a hospital bed with Jan sitting beside him. Hi. Uh, oh, hi, Jan. I want you to call a cop. Uh-uh. Listen, kid, I've been dreaming about it. It's no good now. Be a good kid and call a cop, will you? I don't have to. There's one outside now. What do you mean? When you passed out, I guess you were delirious or something. You told them. I told them? That's good. That's good. Oh, I'm glad. You want me to hang around? Well, I... that's up to up to you, I guess. I guess it is. I'll hang around. Wally takes the blame for the forest fire and finds redemption in his new relationship with Jan. But the ending of this story has started to seem a lot more ambiguous to me. Given what we know about mid-century fire policy, the wildfire in Red Forest starts to seem less like an individual's trifling carelessness and more an example of network blowback with forest rangers and their overzealous fire prevention policies sharing Wally's burden of guilt for the scope and destructive force of the fire. 
I'm also struck by how the final sequence solidifies a pattern whereby crucial events in the story are not depicted. Wally's murder of his former friend, the dropped match that started the forest fire, his confession to the police, even Wally's drunken obliviousness to the crime that set his quest in motion. In every case, a key action is missing from the plot. For me, the haunting absence of so many pivotal events, paired with the heavy sense of guilt that hangs over the story from that opening sequence, makes Red Forest speak to our contemporary experience of slow-moving and often imperceptible ecological threats. Wally, slowly realizing that he is to blame for the catastrophic wildfire that surrounds him, is a post-war variation on the environmental allegory of the frog realizing too late that it's in a pot of boiling water. As the writer Amitav Ghosh puts it, the freakish weather events of today are animated by cumulative human actions. They are the mysterious work of our own hands returning to haunt us in unthinkable shapes and forms. Now is a good time to revisit narratives like Red Forest, as wildfires are again making headlines and flaming forests have become an icon of the Anthropocene. There's been a steady increase in both the number of large wildfires per year and the length of the wildfire season in the United States. There's a broad consensus that these changes are tied to global warming. The United Nations warns that wildfires could become more frequent and destructive as global temperatures rise and as drought conditions plague many parts of the world. To make matters worse, the rise of wildfires is part of a destructive feedback loop in the climate system. When more trees and plants burn, there are fewer to pull carbon out of the atmosphere, which leads to warmer weather and more fires. In the American imagination of the 1940s and 50s, wildfires happened in Idaho and Montana. But now the problem is often linked to the boreal forests of Russia, Alaska, and Canada. Tonight, the all-out panic to escape the wildfire. Oh, I can feel the heat here. This is insane. Burning out of control through this city in northern Alberta, Canada. Lord, keep us safe. Get us out of Fort McMurray in one piece. One highway in and out, a wall of flames just behind these homes. The warming trend has been drying out these northernmost forests, resulting in fires in the tundra where they haven't occurred for thousands of years. Like the post-war shift from fire prevention to fire management, we're now living in a time when fire policy is again in flux. A recent Forest Service document contained guidelines for adapting to an era of climate change and urged employees to anticipate big surprises, expect mega droughts, larger fires, loss of resilience, and system collapse. In times like these, we should listen again to stories like Red Forest as more than documents of a bygone era. Red Forest is a smoke signal from the dawn of the Anthropocene epoch that we still inhabit 
and only now are we beginning to decode its message. Perhaps it's only now that listeners can identify with Wally's uncanny intuition that the forest environment is changing and that we are somehow to blame. Like Wally, we too have become lost, surrounded by trees that are the same but aren't. ESC was written and produced by me, Jake Smith, and published in 2019 by the University of Michigan Press under a Creative Commons NC license. Post-production for the podcast is by Liam Davis. Special thanks to Mary Francis and to the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for its support of the Fulcrum platform on which this publication is hosted. You can find all 10 episodes of ESC and learn more about the sound artists and environmental issues that I discuss at www.press.umich.edu slash p slash esc. Thanks for listening.